we're not replacing church with Easter headlines. So it's the Saturday before, uh, uh, before um, Sunday. So we're having it right across the street. So please keep in mind that day and think about people who you can invite and pray for. Uh, we've already started praying for some of our neighbors as well. So please join us in that. Uh, well, this morning we are, as Tim mentioned, we are going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount. And here, just to remind us, what Jesus is doing is uh, he's elaborating on the Old Testament. So he's taking the Old Testament and he's interpreting it the way that it should be. That guiding verse for us comes in verse 17. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish or, uh, or, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he's talking about the Old Testament law, and how he elaborates this is what we call the six antitheses. Uh, we call them the six antitheses. And what he's doing is he's taking each topic of the Old Testament, and he's challenging the Pharisees' interpretation of it. And so far, these past few weeks, we talked about the topics of anger. We talked about adultery. And today, we're going to cover two more of them, and it's going to be the topic of divorce and oaths. And underlying both of them is this underguarding topic of integrity, integrity, and that's the title of today's message, Kingdom Integrity. To introduce this topic of integrity, I want to uh, uh, share an experience I had with two of my friends growing up. First friend um, in my college days, he was my roommate, and what we would do is uh, we would fight over who had to do the chores around the house. And the best way to decide was playing games, uh, especially video games. And we would say, if you lose this game, you have to wash the dishes. Or if you lose this game, you have to clean the bathroom. So that's how we would resolve a lot of our arguments and the chore distribution. We would actually have a tally board on the refrigerator to keep track of who won and who lost and who had to do what. And it was particularly this game of soccer, this video game, uh, that uh, helped us establish this. Now, one day, my friend, he was having an off day. He just kept losing and losing to me. And so at first, I got him to do the dishes, clean the bathroom, clean my room, even do my laundry, actually even to the point where he had to wash my car. But then him being a proud friend, he kept wanting to double or nothing. And it actually got to the point where there was nothing else that I wanted or needed. And I just, in a joking manner, I said, give me your firstborn son. And he says, all right, I promise that if I lose, I will give you my firstborn son. He's not married yet, but I wonder if I showed up uh, when he has his first child at the hospital and say, you remember, this is mine. Name him Luke Wu, like a Rumpelstiltskin. It just goes to show just how these words are kind of thrown around lightly. But if we take them seriously, they can actually have very different effects. I want to introduce another friend, again, in college. This was my senior year, and during that time, my grandfather, uh, he was reaching the last years of his life, and we all knew that. So I had the privilege of taking that whole summer and going back to Korea to be with my grandfather, and it was just him and I. And his last wish was to not be in an elderly community, uh, not to be with us in America, but to simply go back to his hometown and live in a one-room apartment. So I spent three months with him, and it was a very great time for us. And now when I first arrived at that apartment, my grandfather, he was very old, he was actually um, had Alzheimer's disease, uh, I remember the first thing that I saw was just how messy the apartment was and just how grimy everything was, uh, from the floors to the bathroom. So the first thing I had to do was spend the time cleaning that apartment. I literally had to hose down the floor because it was so sticky. And while I did that, my friend, my childhood friend from Korea, he was with me. And after I did that, I remember him saying to me in Korean, he says, uh, Luke, I know that you can't be here that often. I know that you have to go back to America after the summer. So I promise that I'll come here from time to time uh, to help clean up and check up on your grandfather. And he did. And he did. A friend that I only knew for about six years of my life. And those stories are very touching, and it stands out, doesn't it? Especially compared to my 
first soccer friend who made that rash statement. And why does this stand out? Why does such integrity stand out? Why? Because it's so rare, so unique, especially this day and age. It's more common for us to hear stories about my first friend and I who take our words so lightly and so much more rare to hear my second friend. Daniel Webster, he once said, there is nothing so powerful as truth and often nothing so strange. It's strange because it stands out, doesn't it? And integrity is something that we all struggle with something that I struggle with constantly, whether it be following through with my words, not using exaggeration to make myself look better or to use them just for my benefit. I resonate with one pastor, George McDonald. He once said, I always try, I I think I do, uh, to be truthful. And all the same, I tell a great many petty lies, things that mean one thing to myself, though to another person it means something different, all because... I value too much the world's opinion, and I fear what people think of me. And in our passage, Jesus, he critiques two ways specifically how this current society and his society back then failed in this area of integrity. And the first is in the area of marriage and divorce. And second, which is related to the first, is the topic of oaths and how people made commitments. And Jesus challenges these two which was prevalent at this back at his time, and also, unfortunately, very prevalent today, just how we misuse these two things. And that's going to be the outline of our message this morning, how Jesus challenges us by raising, number one, the seriousness of divorce, the seriousness of divorce, number two, the seriousness of oaths, and finally, why Jesus takes them so seriously, why he takes these two so seriously. Seriously. So with that said, let's ask the Lord for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you this morning. For many of us, we don't even know how spiritually famished we are. For many of us, we've been feeding ourselves with just temporary pleasures, things that just make us feel good in the moment. We've been feeding ourselves with our pride feeding ourselves with whatever the world gives us. But God, this morning, help us to feed on you, on your truth, in your gospel, for we are hungry for your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. On number one, the seriousness of divorce. So in verse 31, if you look with me, he's starting to draw from the Old Testament. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, with this statement, what Jesus is doing is he's summarizing a whole chapter, Deuteronomy 24. And that chapter, it describes a very specific and unique situation that allows for divorce. And so as I describe what this chapter says, keep in mind, Jesus is speaking into a patriarchal society He's not saying that only women are sexually immoral, but he's speaking to and against what's prevailing at that time. So here's what's going on in Deuteronomy 24. There's a man and there's a woman. They're engaged to be married. And finally, the day comes when they can consummate the wedding. They have their wedding. They establish their home. The dowry and the negotiations between the two families have taken place. And then... The husband finds out that she had been unfaithful to the engagement, perhaps by being with another man prior to the wedding. So in light of that, Deuteronomy says, if then she finds no favor in her husband's eyes because he has found some indecency in her, then he shall write her a certificate of divorce. Now, the purpose behind Deuteronomy 24 It was actually intended to protect women, to protect women, because what was going on during that time was men were just frivolously divorcing their wives for whatever reason. And so this unique, specific situation, it limits the reason why divorce would be allowed. It says only if there is some indecency found in her. And so if such a unique and special circumstance like this happened, then the husband is to formalize the divorce. 
to formalize it, to give an official document, to go to court and to have this formalization because what was going on was men, they were just unilaterally, unilaterally divorcing their wives without going through the formal procedures and they were just leaving them. And especially back then, it left the women in such a vulnerable state because during that patriarchal society, women, they needed to be married to a husband in order to have security, in order for their well-being. So imagine with me, a husband just leaving his wife without formalizing the divorce. She can't go anywhere. She can't remarry anyone because she's technically still married to the first husband. So oftentimes, they're lying in destitution. Many times, they have to find work at the brothel or live on the streets. And it is to this perversion and to this injustice that God institutes Deuteronomy 24. Because number one, it limits the reasons that you can say, okay, I want to divorce my wife. It limits it. It says only in this unique, specific situation am I allowing divorce. And also, it formalizes it so that the woman can be taken care of so that she can remarry and also go on and live with her life. It also protects the woman in that the first husband, say that he leaves her, and then later on he has a change of thought and he says, all right, come back to me. It prevents that because now the divorce has been formalized. He cannot beckon her to come back at his whim or his will. So the thought behind this chapter is to protect women against the injustice of divorce. Nevertheless, the Jewish men, led by the religious leaders of the time, they turned this chapter over its head, and as they tended to do, they took a particular line in the Old Testament and they reinterpreted it. They conv convoluted it. They mangled it. So they took this one line where it says, if the man find some indecency in her. And they expanded that to their own sinful desires. They tried to define what indecency meant. So they got together and they asked, all right, what does indecency mean? What constitutes indecency? And by the time that Jesus is speaking here, here are some of their conclusions. And I'm reading this uh, from, from the Mishnah, uh, which is their very thick book of Old Testament interpretation. Here's one interpretation. It's under the house of Hillel. It states, this is what indecency is. If the wife has spoiled her husband's dinner because it said, if he has found in her indecency in anything, he has the right to divorce her. Here's another extreme interpretation. This is under the house of Akiba, which states, even if the husband finds some woman who is prettier than his wife, he has the right to divorce her, since it is said, and it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. Now, these two interpretations, they were the prevailing ones during Jesus' time. In fact, it was such a common practice for divorce to, to be happening so, so frivolously that everyone just expected it at this point. We see it in records of how Jewish men simply divorced their wives for whatever reason that they wanted. And one particular historian, he divorced his Jewish wife just so that he can marry a Greek woman. And because this was the prevailing practice, Jesus is speaking against this kind of perversion of the law. And he's talking against this kind of practice because this is what divorce ended up being. As, as one commentator describes it, he says, this was nothing more than a form of publicly sanctioned adultery. It was at the heart of it. It was just adultery. Men were doing whatever they wanted. As long as the paperwork was there, they thought that it was permissible. Now, I talked about two interpretations. Now, given there was also a conservative Jewish interpretation under the house of Shammai, and they strictly defined indecency as fornication and adultery. Now, albeit this was a very minority view. And during Jesus' time, there are these debates going on amongst these houses. What does indecency mean? What allows us to divorce our wives? So there are all of these debates going on between the highly liberal view, the, liberal view, uh, the moderately liberal view, and the conservative view. And that's why later on in Matthew 19, 
you don't have to turn to it, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they gather and they test Jesus. They come up to Jesus and they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? And what they're trying to do is, they're trying to see, okay, which interpretation does Jesus take? The very liberal one, the moderately liberal one, or the conservative one? And they're all interested, just as we are. What does Jesus have to say to this? And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't respond to the question. He doesn't take any one of those stances. And the reason why they're trying to test him is because, say that he takes the very liberal stance, then they would say, Jesus, you're not respecting the Old Testament law, and you said you did not come to abolish the law, but that's what you're doing. Or say that he takes the very conservative one, then they know that the people will rise up against him and he will not be popular amongst the people because that was what was so prevalent at that time. So they're trying to test Jesus, but he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't reveal which side he's on because what he says is, you know what? All of you are missing the point. And he responds by saying, don't you know what the whole point of marriage is? Chapter 19, verse 4, he answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. He's saying, all of you are so preoccupied with the grounds of divorce, but I'm preoccupied with the intent and purpose of marriage. You're missing the point here. He's saying the purpose of God's law is not to do as much as you can without breaking the law. You're so preoccupied with what is considered transgressing the law that you're completely missing out on God's original intent between man and wife. He's saying a man is supposed to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and to become one flesh. It's a permanent institution. Not even does God call the relationship between child and mother one flesh. Why? Because we all know eventually the child will separate. The child will live his or her own life. But that's not the case between husband and wife. They are inseparable. So Jesus is saying the question that you should be asking is not this. It's not what is the bare minimum that I can do and still be considered obeying the law? He's saying the question that you should be, you shouldn't be, you should be asking is not what's the most amount of evil that I can do and still be considered obeying God's law. What he's condemning is you're obeying God just to get by and you're completely missing God's heart and intent behind it. If you remember, a law is more than a law. Rule is more than a rule. There's thought and intention and purpose behind those laws. So Jesus, he's not siding with the liberal or the conservative view, but he's taking it to a whole new level, a level that people living in his kingdom exemplifies, and it's this. He's saying, if you take the Old Testament, something like this word on divorce, and you're looking for a particular clause or a way out of marriage, he's saying, then you've already violated God's heart and his intent for marriage. If that's what you're looking for, your heart is already in the wrong place. Why? Because your focus and your intent, it's not towards cultivating the marriage, but your intent is avoiding breaking the law. It's the difference when, say that a student goes to the teacher and they ask, teacher, what do I have to do to not fail? That's kind of the driving purpose for some of the students. What's the bare minimum? What do I have to do so that I don't fail? Versus the student who goes, teacher, how can I do my best and get the best possible grade that I can get? The approach is radically different. And whether it be on the topic of divorce or in any aspect of God's command, this is very revealing of our hearts because all of us, we try to do the bare minimum of obedience 
to still be considered good Christians. We do the bare minimum of, of praying before meals, the bare minimum of showing up on Sunday. As long as I don't miss the message, then I'm okay. The bare minimum of giving our 10% tithe without much thought and much deliberation of where this money is going to. How does God want me to use his money? And we do the bare minimum so that we can still be considered good, even with Easter around the corner. We know that it's a time where we should be praying and be fervent in our relationship with God, but we'll do the bare minimum, even spiritually getting ready for it. Instead of seeing this as an opportunity to dive into just deep repentance and intimacy with our Father. We do the bare minimum of holiness, and on the other hand, we want to do the, bare, uh, the uh, most maximum of sin without it being labeled technically as sin. Questions such as, what's the most amount of entertainment I can enjoy before I'm dishonoring God? Or what's the most amount of, of physical involvement can I have with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? until it's considered sexual immorality? What's the amount of most, uh, most amount of unfaithfulness I can practice towards my spouse without it being adultery? And we even tiptoe along the lines of not loving her, not cherishing her, not valuing her the way that Christ values us. So all of us, we're trying to get as close to the line of the law as we can without stepping over it. And we're messing with sin and we're living on edge. And instead of inching closer towards the law to do the bare minimum of holiness and the maximum of sinfulness, what Jesus is saying is you should be running in the opposite direction. Your heart should be radically different. And in the topic of marriage, the question is not, what allows divorce? The question is, what can I do to give up my life and to cherish my spouse, to pursue her and to love her? That's the intent. That's the direction that you should be pointing to. And he says, if you're even asking the question of what's the way out, he's saying your heart's in the wrong place. Perhaps I can show you the difference through this illustration. This is what Jesus is getting at. And I think I can do that since, you know, this pastor and I were very close. So I'm going to make an example of these two renewal pastors. Um, this here, this first picture, is a picture of myself and Pastor Charles on a bridge, okay? We are on a bridge. Now, this isn't just any bridge because just a few yards away, there's this sign. And you can't see it well, but I'll read it for you. It's in Korean, in Chinese and broken English. And in English, it says, be careful to observe border regulations and maintain border peace and stability. This bridge is actually a bridge that crosses into North Korea. <laughs> Picture three. And here you are. That's the line that goes into North Korea. And here we are, two American citizens with United States passports in the most volatile time in history, Right at this border, and this last picture shows us. Now, Comrade Charles, um, he was the Pharisee in this situation. Why? Because the whole time, he wanted to get as close as he could to the line. In fact, he even thought about stepping over the line and placing his right foot over, and he asked, hey, if I did that, do you think they'll know? And I said, I think they know that you're thinking it already. And him, he's actually a North Korean descent. He was saying, I want to be able to say, I stepped foot in my motherland. And he kept trying to inch closer and closer. Now, he was the Pharisee. What's the bare minimum? What's the bare minimum that I need to do and still be obeying the regulation here? Now, me, I was like Jesus. <laughs> I wanted to run the opposite way. I didn't want to mess around with it. I said, my heart and my intent is to run away from it and to follow after God, which is obeying the law. And so we, even though this picture shows that we're in the same place, our hearts were in a very different category. His intent was, what's the closest I can get without breaking the law? My heart was already back in Philadelphia. I wanted to be as far away from breaking the law as I could. 
Now, what's the difference between Comrade Charles and myself? It's the heart, isn't it? It's not the external. It's the question of what are you looking for? What are you intent on in your marriage? Are you looking for a way out? Are you looking for reasons to blame your spouse? Is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for and are you running after the direction of loving him, cherishing him, and vice versa? Whereas husbands, we're to die for our wives just as Christ died for us. And not only in marriage, in your spiritual walk, are you doing the bare minimum of holiness and the maximum of sinfulness and self-centered living just so that you can say, well, I'm still obeying it, but it's your heart and the direction that your heart is going towards is it maximizing holiness and minimizing sin and running the other direction. That's what's behind Jesus. And Paul, later he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And the mystery profound. And I'm saying that it refers to who? The Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's what's behind the seriousness of divorce. Number two, seriousness of oaths. Now, he continues on the topic of oaths and commitments. Now, while it seems like this topic comes from left field, especially as such a sensitive topic as divorce, but what's underguarding both these topics is the idea of kingdom integrity. He's describing what the kingdom of God is like, and the, and the citizens of that kingdom, he's saying, are marked with such integrity whether it be uh, committing to your marriage vows or simply in your everyday speech of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. And this kind of kingdom integrity, he's saying it stands out. It stood out in Jesus' time. It stands out even today. And a few weeks ago, we were asking the question, how can we be salt and light of this, earth, of this world? This is one practical reason. If we hold to an integrity that this world is not used to, if our words hold weight, if we follow through with our commitments. At CNN, they did a survey, and they followed uh, the average American, and they compiled all this data together, and they were asking the question, how many times does the average American get lied to in a day? And they found that it was anywhere between 10 to 200 times a day that they're being lied to. Anywhere from just simply trying to keep a conversation going whether to uh, avoid conflict or to establish some kind of connection with the other person. And so here we have that same introductory pattern. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said of those old, which means this is what your tradition says. Or in other words, this is how you've been wrongly interpreting the Old Testament law on oaths. And this comes off of the third and ninth commandment. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not fall, uh, swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now, this is not saying that Christians aren't to make any promises or take oath in uh, general, whether it be legal or making promises to people. Uh, there's a misunderstanding that I think some people have when they read this. Uh, I believe the Quakers and some other Christian sects, they read this and say, okay, I can never formally take an oath. I can never go to civil court. But see that taking oaths is not only common in Scripture, but God himself, he takes oaths. For example, he makes an oath with Noah that he will never flood the world again. That's why we have the rainbow that shows his promise that he's going to follow through with that promise. God promises through an oath that he will send the Messiah and the Savior of this world. The clearest example we have is Jesus himself. If you remember, during his last days, he stands before Pontius Pilate, and he has to testify in front of the witnesses, and he has to uh, speak under oath. And so there are occasions when taking oaths are necessary and important. For example, when you do get married in front of the minister and in front of the congregation, you are making an oath before God and the witnesses regarding your marriage vows. Or when you need to testify in court in front of the judge, you need to make an oath in front of them. So then, what is Jesus condemning here? 
And what Jesus is condemning is what was going on was that the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, they were using certain kinds of oaths and using certain kinds of language to determine whether a commitment was binding or not. They used all of these legal technicalities to get out of commitments or to make other people follow through with commitments if it benefited themselves. So for example, someone might make a commitment or promise to do something, and when the time came for them to do it, they would respond, you know, well, technically, I didn't swear by God that I would do that. So I don't really have to do this. I don't really have to follow through with this. And again, we read the Mishnah, and the way that they used these oaths, they would promise by using other words, saying such as, I promise by heaven, or I promise by earth, or I promise by Jerusalem, or I promise, or I vow, or take an oath with the hair on my head. And then each time that people would come up to them and say, hey, you have to follow through on your promises, they would say, you know what? Technically, I promised swearing by my hair or by Jerusalem or by heaven. It's not binding because I didn't swear by God. Actually, in one part of that Mishnah, it says, if you swear by Jerusalem, it's not binding. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, it's binding. So they took all of these little technicalities for their own advantage. Can you imagine a, a Jewish business transaction back then? Saying, I promise by Jerusalem that I will deliver these goods. And no matter what I do, you have to write a good review about me. And then he doesn't follow through, and they come back and say, hey, what's going on? He's saying, well, technically, I didn't swear by God. I didn't uh, swear towards Jerusalem, so I'm not bound to do this. And they would have their way. See, this is the kind of oath that Jesus is condemning here. And he's saying, even if you're saying, okay, I'm not swearing by God, let's talk about this. If you swear by heaven, heaven is where God's throne resides. So you are swearing by God. Let's say that you swear by earth and it's not binding. Well, earth is God's footstool. It belongs to God, so you are swearing by God. And let's say that you say, I'm swearing by Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is God's city, so you are swearing by God. He says, in fact, even if you say, I'm swearing by the hair of my head, you don't have control over the hair of your head. God does. So no matter what you swear by, you are still swearing by God. God sees all. He's in control of all things. He is present everywhere. You cannot get out of your oaths. They were trying to manipulate their promises to God and to others. They're trying to make excuses. They're trying to get out of their commitments. Now, I remember a traumatic experience I had in fifth grade, and try to imagine just how traumatic this was, being so young. I was in the back of my father's station wagon, and I was playing around with the seats, and you know how the seats kind of fold down and fold up, and if you're not careful, the seat can just very suddenly come down, and, and it can lie very flat, and as I was playing with it, all of a sudden, the seat uh, fell back into place, and my thumb, it got stuck between the two seats, and for a good couple of minutes, I couldn't pull it out. And I was very young at that time, and I was just screaming my lungs out. I was crying. My, my parents were, I think, at Kmart, like good parents do, leaving their child in the back of their car. And I was just literally screaming at the top of my lungs. And in my mind, I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. Because I couldn't, I couldn't get my thumb out. And so at the last moment, I believe the Holy Spirit convicted me and says, pray. Pray to God. So I lifted up a desperation prayer, and I said what we always say when we're in such situations, God, if you get me out of this, I'll do whatever you say. If you save me from this situation, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And miraculously, I wiggled my thumb. Believe it or not, I got out of that mess, and my thumb escaped. And now here's what happened in my mind afterwards. I started thinking to myself, did God really do this? I mean, if God wanted to save me, he would have sent somebody or something miraculous would have happened. I just kind of wiggled my thumb and it just happened to get myself out of that. I don't know if God was that involved. I think I just tried a little bit harder. So I don't really have to do whatever God says. And I made myself feel better by convincing myself, playing around with the words. 
God, I will do whatever you tell me to do. And I think it's ironic and also sovereign that I'm standing before you today as a full-time minister giving my life to God. God cannot be mocked or deceived. And as silly of a story that is, I think that reflects a lot of us, how we mess around with our words, not only to God, but to others. We try to justify ourselves. We try to explain the situation. Whenever things get less busy, then I'll start taking my faith seriously. Then I'll start looking to serve the church and others. But how do you define busyness? When you say things like, when I'm a little bit more well-off financially, that's when I'm going to start giving to God and to missions. Well, how do you define being well-off? And this isn't just limited to just between us and God. How often do we do this to others? How often do we back out of our promises and commitments? How quick are we to use busyness and our specific situations to not follow through, even with our appointments, promising things like, let's get together sometime, where both of you know that in the back of your head, you're not really intending to get together. So I tell you, if someone tells you that, take out your calendar. It says, when are you free next week? And you have a very awkward moment between the two of you. What, really? How many times do we say things like, I'll pray for you? And do we really pray for them? Now, I was convicted of this, to not take those words lightly. Or even if you do pray for someone, it's the heart and motivation behind it just so that you can say, I did pray for that person, to feel better so that you're not guilty. Or are you wholeheartedly praying for that person? Do you see how we twist the words to fit our situation? And the Pharisees, they were doing the same thing, coming up with scruples and technicalities to justify themselves, to explain their unwillingness to follow through with promises or to justify their dishonesty. We do the same thing. We use busyness or craziness of life to take less, to lessen the seriousness of our sins. Don't we say things like, oh, having a rough day at work justifies my behavior towards my family. Don't we say things like, I'm not getting what I want from God, so of course it makes sense that my spiritual life is in shambles right now. We explain situations. We try to justify things because we think that if God really knows what's going on, he would understand. But God is looking at the oath and the promises that you've made, not only to himself, but to others. The Pharisees tried to explain their lies. And Jesus says, that is not how Christians are to live. We are to live with integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And what Jesus is saying, don't even be in a position to even have to take oath. Allow it so that your word is as strong as an oath. He's saying the reason why oaths and promises exist in the first place is because nowadays we need to give some kind of evidence or assurance that what we say or promise that we really mean it. Isn't that what's going on? One commentator writes, it's as if if we recite some kind of formula, I promise, or I promise, or I swear. He's saying only then will our words have more weight and reliability more than our normal speech. But the question is, why do kingdom citizens need to have such formula? Shouldn't all of our speech have weight and reliability so that we don't need to swear by anything at all? But in all that we say, there's weight and reliability to it. So he says, we try to induce people to believe us, to persuade them, because the premise is that we so often lie that we need to convince them to believe us when we really mean it. And one other writer says, oaths arise because men are so often liars. For example, here's this story that I read. Imagine on a Thursday afternoon, A father tells his child, if you help me clean the yard today, I will take you out for ice cream on Saturday. And the wary child goes, do you promise? And the writer says, the request for a promise is a testimony against the father because it shows that the child has learned 
that he cannot entirely trust his father's word because in the past, he cleaned up the yard but never received the ice cream. And when the child would point that out, his father would say things like, I forgot, or something came up, or you should have reminded me. Therefore, the child, he learned now to seek guarantees. When he asks, do you promise? He means, do you mean it? Can I count on you this time? When we get to the heart of the matter, don't we break oaths? Because we have a desire just to please ourselves, to do things when it's convenient for us. And don't we exaggerate our words because of a desire to impress people or even have people to feel sorry for us? Don't we say certain things to escape difficult situations and even break promises to certain people? Do we break promises to our loved ones? But perhaps we go to work and those promises hold more weight. And Jesus is saying, this isn't the way it should be. Let what you simply say, yes, let that be the yes, and no be no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Let's wrap up with asking this question of why does Jesus take these two things so seriously? Why is he so serious about this? He's elevating the sanctity and union of marriage so high that he's saying it's unbreakable. But also given that divorce was so prevalent back at that time and is even sadly prevalent today in both Christian and non-Christian circles. And also, when you consider just how often oaths and promises are being broken, why does Jesus have to be so strict and so serious about these things? Well, let's see here. In Malachi chapter 2, God comes out and says it. He says, The Lord was witness between you and your wife, Has not the Lord made man and wife one? For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. In other words, he's saying, I detest divorce. And it's because for God, the topic of divorce and oath is extremely personal to him. And while for many in the church and outside of the church, this topic is very sensitive, and I'm aware that there's so much hurt that comes out of unfaithful marriages, for God and for Jesus, it's all the more sensitive. It's all the more personal. And with oaths, while oaths are being broken so many times throughout the day for many of us, for Jesus, it's not something that just happens to everyone. Why? Because he made an oath to us. And he's been establishing his relationship with us from the beginning of eternity based on a marriage between him and us that will never end in divorce based on a promise that he made to never forsake us. For Jesus, the the integrity of marriage and oaths are highly personal. And it's a serious matter. Why? Because he sees us as highly personal matters. He sees us, and it is very serious for him. And there are certain things that people hold very important, certain things that are very sensitive to them. And it's extremely important to them because why? They've personally invested in those things. Growing up in grade school, we would always make fun of each other, kind of pull pranks and and poke fun at each other. But everyone knew, all of my friends, that there are two things that you don't make fun of me about. Number one is, you don't make fun of my mom. As soon as that mother language comes out, I become a different person. And number two, you don't make fun of ethnicity. And so though we would go all out making fun of each other, they would know, okay, those two things, he's very serious, and he takes it very personally. Why? Because I'm personally invested in those two things. Even now, I take things very seriously over those that I'm highly invested in. Believe it or not, that was the only reason why I got suspended from school when they were talking about those two things and I had to get in fights to protect my honor and my family's honor. (laughs) And even now, I get defensive over the things I'm personally invested in. When my wife corrects my Korean language, I get very defensive because I personally invested so many hours studying these children's storybooks and improving my language. And every time she corrects me, I'm saying, why? No, no, this is right. Look at this children's book. (laughs) I get very defensive when people outside of our church 
critique our church and they say something about it. And I say, no, you don't understand or you don't understand where this person is coming from. I get highly defensive. Why? Because I'm personally invested in this church and I've only been serving here, what, for four years? Imagine the God of eternity who's been personally invested in you, not for four years, but for all of eternity. And he made a promise to you. And he made a promise that he would never leave you or forsake you and not even once think about divorce. This is why this is so personal and so serious to Jesus. Because for all of eternity, not even once did he even consider, break, uh, consider breaking his oath to, forsake, uh, to never forsake us. Not once did he even consider breaking his promise to save us, even when it cost him his very life. Do you remember in his weakest moment in the Garden of Gethsemane? When it would be so understandable if Jesus pulled out of his commitment, considering all the pain that he has to go through. And yet he still says, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So for Jesus, not backing out on a promise is extremely personal and a serious matter for him. For God, he did not resort to divorce when things got difficult or where there was some indecency found in us. In fact, he takes divorce and oath so seriously that even when we commit adultery and there is indecency found in us, time and time again, he doesn't write off a certificate of divorce. I love Hosea chapter 2. And there's a story where God commands the prophet Hosea to time and time again to reinstate his wife, even though she keeps running after other men. And Hosea, he had every right to divorce his wife according to the law. But God says, don't. Don't divorce her. Go get her back. For this is what I'm like with you. This is how I am with my people. And God, he doesn't simply allow us to come back to him. In fact, he pursues after us. He chases us. He wins us over again and again. Read this from Hosea 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. That's us. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And when Hosea kept running after his wife, Gomer, time and time again, all the people ridiculed him saying, you're wasting your time. Which number of men has she gone to? And they pointed out even just how much money he had to spend because he had to buy her back each single time. And still, he paid whatever price it took to win her back. And God commanded that to Hosea because on that cross, when Jesus went up on that tree, Satan ridiculed him, saying, how many times is this now? How much are you wasting? It's not worth it. Do you know how many times that sinner has sinned against you time and time again? And do you imagine, can you imagine the ridicule that Jesus had to face upon that cross? Can you imagine how much he had to pay to bring us back and not even just allow us to come back, but to pursue after us the way they pursues, he pursues us each day? And why did this happen? Because for God, divorce was never an option. Backing out on an oath was never a possibility because God is a God of integrity and he follows through with his promises and commitments. To end, I want to read an excerpt from James Boyce. And he once read uh, these marriage vows to the church. But it wasn't marriage vows between husband and wife. It was a marriage vow between God and his people. So let us listen to this. He says, in our salvation, we were married to him. He it was who took the vows first of all, saying, I, Jesus, take thee, sinner, to be my bride. 
And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful Savior and bridegroom in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in faithfulness and in waywardness for time and for eternity. And when we looked up to him and said, I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior and my Lord, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful bride in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, for time and for eternity. God and Jesus is serious about these things because he is serious about us, and it's sensitive to him because he's been investing in us for all of eternity, and no matter what happens, he will never forsake us. Let us pray. As we close our time in praise and song, let's spend a few seconds praying over what we have just heard. And first of all, I just want to just encourage anyone here that has been affected by divorce, whether personally or through our parents or our loved ones. And please understand that Jesus, he's not taking it lightly. He knows the hurt, the messiness of relationships. And he knows just how sinful that we can be. But it's because of how sinful we can be that he gives us the promise of his commitment to us that no matter how hard even our marriages or even the relationship with our loved ones can be, there is one relationship that we can always fall back on. And God says, my commitment to you will never fail. Let's praise him and thank him for his assurance and commitment to us. Let's pray.